0: Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Now let's do the second part of N is for Natal. In the the first segment here, we got as far as... Uh, Mary has gone to Jerusalem to be with her cousin Elizabeth, who was about six months pregnant. And it says in the text in Luke that Mary spent about three months with her cousin and then returns to Nazareth. And it says uh, Mary uh, remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. And then in verse uh, 57 of chapter 1, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore her son. And the rest of chapter 1 is all about the birth and childhood and and an introduction to the ministry of John the Baptist, a long section of Scripture. And then we get to chapter 2, which is the birth of Jesus. And we get all of seven verses. It is so compressed. I'm going to read it to you, and you... Take note, especially after that quiz, of what is and is not in this section. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now notice how how really beautifully simple that is and so very basic and as humble as the birth the telling of it there's none of this romanticized stuff with animals gathered around and it's just not there it's simple and beautiful and and cut to the chase folks i love it think about we start doing christmas now before halloween we're into christmas stuff Seven verses in one gospel, and that's all. Uh, I think we've missed it, folks. I think we've missed it. Okay, we're going to continue. There is the birth narrative, all seven verses of it. Um, in verse 8 to verse 20, we get the visit of the shepherds who have been out in the fields because that's where flocks are this time of year, the time of year of, of this event. Uh, they're out, and so they leave their sheep Probably left, poor guy drew the short straw and had to stay home, stay out in the field, and the rest of them went in. So that's the rest, uh, most of the rest of chapter 2. At eight days, Jesus is circumcised. 33 days after that, or a total of 41 days after his birth, he's taken to the temple and presented there, and that's the purification. That purification is for Mary, the uh, Old Testament law. Excuse me, the Old Testament law um, specifies a purification rite 33 days after uh, circumcision if it's a son, 41 days after birth. And then in Luke 2.39, it says they return to Nazareth and then back to Bethlehem. And the question is why? Why did they go up to Nazareth just to return to Bethlehem? And the commentators suggest that's because both Mary and Joseph realize that the child they are about to raise is Messiah, is the son of David who will sit on David's throne. And and they conclude, and, and perhaps they had some wisdom from God on this, that he ought to be raised in the city of David. And so they went back to Nazareth to gather up what few things they had. They originally thought that they were going to be married and raising a family in Nazareth. And so they go home to grab their things and go back to Bethlehem so that they can raise the child in Bethlehem. It is months later, months and months later, that the wise men visit. The wise men come from the east, probably from Babylon, and they stop in Jerusalem to find out where the child will be born, and they're told in Bethlehem, and Herod finds about. You know this, and Herod decides to tell the wise man, you go see him and then come back and tell me exactly where he is, thinking all along, I'm going to have him killed so he doesn't threaten my throne. And they are warned in a dream, the wise men are, not to stop in Jerusalem on their way home. Herod realizes he's been tricked. And so he issues a decree to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, and it says, and in the surrounding hills. However, not many people would have lived out in the hills. It would have been very rare. Why would somebody try to build a house out in the hills around Bethlehem? But potentially there could have been a few families out there. Anyhow, he says, kill all the boys under the age of two years because based on what the wise men said, he knows that this child is under the age of two. That's why there's a significant difference between the time the shepherds see him, uh, perhaps even the same day within 24, 48 hours, and the time the wise men visit. You see, the wise men never were in the stable. It says specifically that they were living in a house in Bethlehem. Okay, they are warned in a dream to get out of town. That's why Jesus isn't killed by Herod's plan to slaughter the infants, the dozen or so of them. They escape Bethlehem and go to, um, to Egypt. We don't know how long they were in Egypt, but at some point they are told to return, and they do. But when they are approaching Bethlehem, they are warned by an angel that Herod's son, Archelaus, has taken over Herod's throne and that he's actually worse than her father, excuse me, than his father. So they skip Bethlehem and go all the way back to Nazareth and raise Jesus in Nazareth. Someone from Nazareth is called a Nazarene, huh? a Seattleite, a, Chico- a Chicagoan, a New Yorker, and a Nazarene. And so the church of the nazarene that's where that comes from he's raised in nazareth Um, there is the entirety of the narrative about the early days and and probably first year or two of jesus's life he's back Um, most of that comes from excuse me most of that comes from the gospel of luke but the visit of the wise men, the flight to Egypt, and then back up to Nazareth, that is found in Matthew chapter 2. So the birth narrative only in Luke's gospel, the visit of the magi in Matthew's gospel, and then we jump way ahead to, to the time when he's about 12 years old and his parents take him to the temple uh, you know that story? You can read that in, in Luke where he, uh, he gets involved in a conversation with the authorities and the teachers at the temple and his parents leave and, and leave him behind. And yeah, it, it makes for some good reading. Okay. What I'd like to do now is see if we can take from this narrative, this uh, birth narrative and get what God wants us to get. And trust me, It is not strings of light and plastic Jesuses and blow-up Santa Clauses on the front lawn. And I wonder, I wonder how our Heavenly Father views that. When he sees believers that spend as much time and energy and money as they do in the commercialization and trivialization of the birth of Christ. I wonder how he feels about that. There is a book that is, oh, decades old, and it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I have it here in my office. It was written by Gordon Fee F. E. E. and Stewart. I can't I can never remember Stewart's first name. It wasn't Ralph. But anyhow, everybody says How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart. I don't agree with everything the two guys said, but it's a good book. And what they do is they talk about the various genre of literature in the Bible and how each of them should be read. So for example, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's historical narrative, there are the epistles with their teaching material, and and each of those genres should be read with an attention to what they are and what it is they seek to communicate how to read the bible for all it's worth um read it a good book uh read it carefully read it uh critically and i don't mean harshly but i mean pay attention and and check to see if, if uh all of what they say is biblical but it's a good book and And one of the best parts of the book is their section on narrative, on historical narrative, which is what this is in Luke chapter one and two. And they say that when we read historical narrative, we have to understand that back then it was written for an entirely different reason than it is now. Western minds look for data. We care about facts. And so when you write historical narrative, you get the facts in. And you get all the relevant facts. In fact, for good measure, put in irrelevant facts that don't make any difference because that's the purpose of a historical narrative, to establish a record. That is not the purpose of ancient historical records. The purpose of ancient historical record, whether it's biblical or extra-biblical, is to communicate a lesson. There's a moral to the story. Now, if it's extra biblical, the moral to the story in a historical narrative is usually gonna be the king was a wonderful man. He was a great guy, a brilliant mind and generous and a great general and a, and a great warrior. That's the lesson we want you to get. The lesson in biblical narrative is obviously going to be very different. And Fee and Stewart says that say that there are three questions that we should ask when we read biblical historical narrative. These three questions have to be asked in this order. Question number one, what does this narrative teach me about God? Question number two, what does this narrative teach me about the characters in the narrative? And then question number three, what does this narrative teach me about me? Those questions must be asked in that order. You see, the the focal point of the Bible isn't me. It's not about me. It's God's book. And history is his story. And historical narrative is the story of God at work. What does this narrative teach me about God? And after I do that, it's still not about me. What does this narrative teach me about these characters? And then, if I've answered those two I am well positioned to ask, what does this teach me about me? And in fact, if you do the first two even reasonably well, the third one answers itself. So here's what I wanna do with the time we've got left. I wanna work through those three questions and I wanna ask, what does this teach me about God? And here I wrestled as I was thinking about, as I was preparing this and and typing up my notes, um, I wrestled with, do I even wanna do this? Because I don't want to do it for you. I want you to encounter the text. I want you to shut off that silly Hallmark Christmas movie and go read this biblical narrative and then spend some time just thinking, what do I learn about God? I did that. And I'm I, I want to share with you what I what I what conclusions I came to you may come to completely different conclusions. Amen and amen. Here are mine, and I decided in the end, obviously, to give them to you to illustrate how this dynamic of understanding and reading biblical historical narrative works. The first thing I take away from this, the first thing that it teaches me about God, is that he's got a plan. And that it happens it is sovereign and it is determined by god and it will happen despite any and all obstacles that herod can plan to kill jesus and he won't succeed that no matter what goes wrong that a harsh group of conservative religious villagers may intend to stone a a woman pregnant out of wedlock it won't happen god has a plan And it works forward at his time and in his way, despite any and all obstacles. And his timing is always perfect. Why did this happen when it happened? It's not coincidence that it is Mary and Joseph and that they live at this particular point in human history and in this particular place that they are from Nazareth and that the baby is born in Bethlehem, and that there's a sojourn in Egypt, and then he is raised back. None of that is coincidental. God's timing is perfect, and his work in geography is perfect. Another reason we need to understand biblical geography. And the Bible happened in a time and a place, and we don't understand the place because we don't have a good grasp on theology. God cared about time and place and his timing is perfect, and his placement is perfect. I decided g- that this narrative teaches me that God works through the least likely of people. If, and, and you've heard this said before, I'm not the first, certainly, that if you were to pick parents for the Messiah, you would not pick Joseph and Mary. Generally uneducated, right? Joseph was a carpenter. He didn't have an education to be a carpenter. Mary was a teenager. She was obviously a woman and a teenager and uneducated and as a woman at the bottom rung of society. And this is who God chose to be parents, birth parents and parents to raise the Messiah. God only explains what he sees fit to explain and when he sees fit to explain it. He tells Mary what he's going to do ahead of time. And he tells Joseph what he's going to do only after Joseph is presented with this dilemma of of an engaged, a betrothed who is clearly pregnant, and what's he going to do about it? And only then, he didn't tell Joseph before he got engaged, before he signed a contract with his soon-to-be father-in-law, that God explains what he sees fit to explain and only when he sees fit to explain it. Now I wanna pause at this point. Do you remember I said, we've got to answer these three questions in this order. And if we do number one and two and do them well, question number three, what does this teach me about me is almost already done. So think of that. He's got a plan and it happens. It will happen despite any and all obstacles. His timing is perfect. His timing and his, his placement is perfect things happen when they should happen, not a moment before or a moment after. And he works through the least likely of people. He explains what he sees fit to explain and does not explain what he doesn't need to or doesn't want to. And he sometimes does odd things, things we wouldn't expect that are in fact gracious provisions for things we can't see yet, because they haven't happened yet. So think about the wise men. They They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each of those are extremely valuable. And they brought them and gave them to Joseph and Mary, these two dirt poor people, this couple that got nothing to their name practically. And they give them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why? What are they gonna do with this stuff for Pete's sake? I'll tell you what they're going to do with it. It is going to fund their life in Egypt. That's what they're going to do with it. And they must have scratched their head and thought, what is this about? What are we going to do with gold and myrrh and frankincense, these crazy expensive spices? What are we to do with this? And then they discover they get down into Egypt and they've got no job and nothing else, except they've got these goods that they can sell and have money to live on in Egypt. God sometimes does things that we wonder, what in the world is this about? And we may never know, or we may look back a decade later and say, Well look at that. My goodness, maybe God does know what he's doing. Okay, listen, those are my things. And and frankly, the truth is that in my drive into town and my drive back, Um, I am in the habit sometimes of listening to the radio, but more often than not, shutting it off and just thinking about things. In the last few days, I've been thinking about the birth narrative, the extended birth narrative that extends beyond the seven verses of Luke chapter 2, and thinking about, what does this teach me about God? I want to encourage you to do the same thing. And whether you do it while you're driving or whatever you're doing, Turn off the TV, turn off the radio, and read the narrative. And then as you're reading it, ask yourself, what is this teaching me about God? Now let's ask the question, what does it teach me about the main characters? And the main characters here are going to be Joseph and Mary. And, and one of my most favorite verses is in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, when he said, I know you're a virgin. And the child you are carrying is of the Holy Spirit and it is the Messiah. And Mary is processing all of this. And she says, I'm a young girl in in this tiny town where I will be ostracized my father will probably kick me out of the house. The village will turn against me. The scarlet letter will be hung on my neck. My life is over. I will never get married. Joseph will put me away at least, if not turn me over. for How is this going to work? And what, how does she respond? She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Oh, were I that submissive to God's will. I look back at some of the bad stuff that's happened to me and how I resisted and fought and got angry and, and bitter and resentful and wanted to strike out. And Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said, I think Mary is the hero of this story. And I think even there, there's a lesson about the way God works. Remember, he works through the least likely of people, a teenage girl from Nazareth. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Whatever it is, I accept it as from a father's hand. What do I learn from Joseph? A good man, not ego-driven, huh? humble, cares more about Mary than his own reputation, and so he'll divorce her quietly because that's the better of the two options he's got. And even before he knew, he was a good man. And then when he finds out from the angel of the Lord what's going on here, it is, all right, let's pick this up and let's run with this. And he is a good man who takes care of his wife and takes her to Bethlehem and And I'm sure that he did not ride the donkey while Mary walked. I don't know that there was a donkey, but if there was, I'm sure what we know of Joseph, a good husband and a good father who takes care of his wife. And I'm sure he made every possible provision for them both when they were in Egypt and is careful to protect them when they return from Egypt. Joseph is a good man who is willing to suffer at God's direction with never a word of complaint. Okay, now I ask the question, what does this narrative teach me about me? And I don't have to answer it, do I? It's already been answered. I take Mary as my example. I take Joseph as my example of what it means to be a husband and a father, and then I learn lessons by looking at God and how he worked in their life, and and then ask myself, how has he worked in my life, and how will he work, and and how am I going to respond knowing that that's the way he works? All right, listen, I, I have not done this justice. Goodness gracious, I wish I could preach a month's worth of sermons on this all over again. I did when I was a pastor. But I hope I hope that now that it's, <laughs> now that it's too late, um, that the next time we approach Christmas, the next time we approach Natal, that you will perhaps take a different look at it. And listen, folks, if you want to string lights, and if you want to put plastic pieces of whatever all around your house and watch Hallmark from morning to night, and do all of that, and if you wanna go into debt, okay, maybe this one isn't such a good idea, and lavish on your kids Christmas gifts that they don't need, that they'll be excited about for about an hour, and a little bit the next morning, and then will fade into memory, Um, that's okay. If you want to do that, that's fine. I happen to think it's a waste of time, energy, and money, but that's on me. My favorite part of Christmas is the day after. Bah humbug. Go ahead and call me a Scrooge and a Grinch. I'm cool with that. But please, folks, read the Bible. Read chapter 2 of Luke. And if that's all you do is just read that. But I hope you'll spend some time thinking about it and ask yourself, What does this passage teach me about God and the way he works? And what do I learn about Joseph and Mary? And how can I see them, not through images on the front of a Christmas card, but how can I see them from this text? And what can this text and what it shows me about God and what it shows me about Mary and Joseph, what does it show me about me and who I ought to be and how I ought to live for the Lord? Thanks, folks. I told you this was going to be different, and so it has. Eh? God bless.